You're listening to the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Harden, and I'm so glad you showed up for our relationship chat today, as well as for you and your people. We're all about living intentionally here so you can experience joy and balance in your relationships once again or for the very first time. Be sure you hang with us on our social media platforms. And if you like research like I do, make sure you check out our website at enneagramandmarriage.com for our weekly newsletter, freebies, and so much more, as well as at Instagram and Facebook. We have so many goodies to share with you. Let's dive right in together. Guys, I'm so excited for today's episode. We are getting to speak with one of my absolute Enneagram heroes, somebody who espouses the and theorem of you don't have to choose just one or the other, B. Chestnut, who is a helper and a leader, a type two who is feminine and yet strong. And I just absolutely adore that we have her as an example of somebody in the Enneagram community to learn from. So thrilled with you today to have her. We'll talk with her in just a few minutes. Before that, I'm going to give you a few brief updates as well as just walk you through the extreme basics of the instincts so that you have a sense for what we're talking about because we are diving deep today. So first of all, I just want to remind you guys that we are in the middle of our deep dive series. We are going through every single one of the types in marriage. And this week we'll be talking about six so that you and your spouses, or if you're thinking about getting married, or if you're in a dating relationship, just have something to work on together, something to be mindful of. We know change takes a lot and a long time, but some of the things we do and some of the tools we put together for you, I know will actually slip on and work earlier than later. And like I said, some of them will take a long, long time and I'm still working through them too. But just grateful that you're doing those deep dives with us. I also want to let you guys know that for those who are following along in the Relationship Planner, the Glow Planner this month, after we did some reuptake with self-care in January, and then we did some building romance in February, the entire month of March is blocked out for conflict resolution tools. These are the kind of things I do with my clients. However, with that caveat, I want to let you know that some of the things we're talking about today have taken us years to work through and we continue to do our work. And so don't forget to go back to past episodes to walk through some of the basics if you're just coming into marriage study. And also if you're having more complex marital dynamics, I want to make sure that you get in touch with a coach or a counselor. You can use psychology today to find somebody in your state or you can go to enneagramandmarriage.com and find one of the helpers that I've trained using my coaching and counseling tools in the background. You can also learn from B. Chestnut and Aranio Paez at cpenneagram.com. I love their online ongoing masterclass. They recently did a class on Dante, which as I was saying last week was so fun because my daughter's been telling me all about Dante and her college studies this week. So it's going to be fun to dive into that with them. If you're doing the planner with us, you know that balancing your instinct It takes a long time and a lot of intention. So we've been working hard on that together. But this week, we're adding in this new month of conflict resolution. And so I really wanted to start, like I said, with a very powerful leader, and that's B. But as a quick reminder of what these instincts are in marriage... You have your self-preserving instinct for taking care of yourself materially, might be with a lot of food, might be with storing up, might be with making sure that you have enough money. 
it's really about the individual, but it's it's a sense of self-preserving, and we'll talk a lot more about this. The next instinct is the social instinct, and you know this probably quite well from other episodes, but it's basically the instinct of being there for the collective and also getting help from the collective. This is my husband's favorite instinct because his family story was that his grandfather was paralyzed and neighbors and church members came rushing in to help when they needed to feed nine children. So it was a very important part of his heritage and it goes farther back than that as well. But these are the things that shape us for survival and for good reason. Anyone who has the sexual instinct as a dominant instinct, they love the one-to-one best, the intimate. It, It could even be just conversations between friends, but this is a person who doesn't like the groups as much or doesn't need the alone time as much. And so, they're going to favor this and we're going to talk about how important it is not to forget the other ones. And you've probably heard other full episodes about this from me or Beatrice or both, but I really want to make sure that you have this basis as you get started today. I also wanted to tell you that briefly when we're dating, I think that we put out different instincts a lot of the times. And you might've heard me say this on past episodes, but I really think that as I analyze my clients and my own dating story, I think we put on other elements that we want people to see in us. And it's just fascinating because then our spouse gets to know us better. And sometimes they're shocked because we were presenting that we were always glamorous with that little black dress. And we are really always in sweats, really. We just thought that was a fun way to start out dating. And we were a bit more of the sexual instinct. Or maybe we are very social but we we started out showing self-preservation interests because we're hoping that our mate will be able to take care of us a little bit as we're going out socially. Or maybe we started out sexually, but we really showed forth the sociability so we could find somebody in a group. Any one of the permutations could really be taking place. It doesn't have to be just that. It's just these are some that have been discussed. But you could have started out self-preserving and then moved into social, or you could have displayed sexual when really you were social. So it just depends on the person, but I just want you to know there's there's some different presentations we do when we're out there strutting our stuff. I'm sure you've noticed this early spring, as have I, that there are animals out there with their wings spread and they're showing that sexual drive. Yeah, this is what we do sometimes to procure a relationship. So if that makes sense to you guys, sometimes it's not easy to tell what your partner is in marriage. And if that was your story, I don't blame you. But as we talk, if you've been with somebody for a while, you're going to notice that they lean in towards various instincts and you can talk about it. But the ways you seek safety now impacts generations to come. So we just want the very best for you and your relationships. And Bea is going to give you so many tips about how to talk about it too. So get ready. We are talking with Beatrice Chestnut, an Enneagram queen in my view. And many of you know her as the author of the complete Enneagram 27 Paths to Greater Self-Knowledge. That book is all about the subtypes. And Bea put so much work into developing the subtypes that we just all owe her a lot because that was a tremendous amount of work. She's also continued to write books and to present all over the world. She's just awesome. Let's welcome her. Thank you so much, B, for joining us with the Enneagram and Marriage podcast. Mm, It's good to be here with you. We are so thankful for your expertise and wisdom. And I know that many of our listeners probably know you from your own podcast, if you would like to share the name of that. Mm, it's the Enneagram 2.0 podcast that I do with my business and teaching partner, Uranio Pais. 
Yeah. Uh, and it is just a wealth of information. So not only do they give you guys the backstory on each of the types, but I love how you guys also, you balance one another and mm. you bring in the heart to the podcast too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that because every time we have an episode here, when I have a heart type on, there's a different layer and I get really intimidated by talking about conflict And so it's really nice for me to bring different experts that I felt were very strong leaders to talk about how to relate with conflict when as a seven, my tendency is to run. So even though I like to help others with it, sometimes personally, I have a bit of an issue. So Mm -hmm. it's fun for us to get to delve in with you. You've been not only an Enneagram expert, but a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about maybe something that you love to teach others about when you're saying, here's something I wish everyone knew about conflict resolution in marriage. Yeah, I think I was a couples counselor for a long time. And I think the Enneagram is one of the most powerful tools to help couples work through conflict. And um, I'm, I'm like you as a two, I used to be extremely conflict avoidant and it's still challenging for me, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I think on the one hand, I've gotten better at doing it myself and engaging in conflict. And as a couples therapist, I really had to develop more uh, mm-hmm. of an ability to help people navigate through it. I think in in marriage relationships, the most important thing is that conflict is inevitable, especially if you have a good relationship, Um, because it's it's couples that I saw that didn't have conflict that often would have bad outcomes because they would slowly disengage over time because they were avoiding talking about things that needed to be talked about um, Mm -hmm. in order to grow closer, actually. And so... I would say the Enneagram really helps us uh, uh, really clarify something that's just true of everybody in conflict, which is that in the beginning of a relationship, there may be a honeymoon period and you, Mm. you know, you fall in love with things about that person, but eventually over time, you start projecting your own shadow, your own stuff onto the other person, right? And in a way, couples, the longer you're together, the more danger there is of of not really listening to each other, not really seeing the other person as they are, but seeing them through a lens that's colored very much by your transference with your parents, your expectations of what people are like based on your own early templates for relationship. Mm -hmm. So like if you had a a parent that was really critical, imagining criticism where it isn't sometimes, Mm -hmm. uh, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I think the Enneagram really helps us clarify much more clearly what each person's lens is on the other one uh, and on their own experience, you know, what what their patterned ways of experiencing others is um, mm-hmm. so that that can be illuminated. And once that's illuminated, it makes working through points of conflict much easier because I think the way conflict is usefully dealt with is, okay, we're having this issue. Let's each talk about ourselves and what we're bringing to it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And when we can each own our own, you know, um, feelings, beliefs, assumptions about the other person um, and be humble about that and say, okay, here's what I need to own. It, it 
reduces defensiveness and it makes it much easier to clarify what's happening and kind of unwind the conflict. Mm, That's very good to know because I think that we come in thinking that we basically have a right to critique our partner and change them and change their backstory up to fit what our felt needs are. When in reality, what we really need to say to one another is help me to finish the work that I started. You know, don't make me so afraid to come back to what we kind of started at the beginning, which I have conceptualized into the Enneagram glow stages. And I talk about how at the beginning we're shining together, then we're healing together. And then we enter the shadows and darkness phases of the relationship. There's the temptation to do that. And I think you just helped me by adding that next layer of saying, not only do we fall into shadow together, but we bring our former shadows and expect our partner to be able to somehow not see those, not be offended by those, and instead kind of say, like, let me live in my shadows, which is generous of us to say, let me pull you out of yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think we want to do that without doing our own work. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And usually in moments of tension, it's not very generous. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's more of a let me tell you what's wrong with you. Um, but I, yeah, you're reminding me that I used to have a supervisor when I was a clinician that she used to say, Couples come to couples therapy to fix the other person. And what they learn is, is they have to fix themselves. You know, they have to heal themselves uh, instead of, of seeing the other person as the problem. And I think that is what I'm suggesting is that when each person can do their own work, but in connection with the other person, you know, that's when things shift more easily. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's really nice to approach so many of our listeners say, my spouse doesn't like the Enneagram. And we usually do say, make sure you come at it with humility and start owning your issues first so that your partner really has a sense of just a little bit. It's a little bit lighter when you see, okay, my I'm not being labeled. I, I recently had somebody say that to me and it was, hey, hang on. You know, my wife and I have been talking and you and her giving me a label and I had to scale back and it was a thinking type. So I had to scale back extra and say, hey, fellow thinking type here, I don't like labels either. But at the same time, now that we're on this even playing ground of of being a little less reductionistic, can we own first what we think your wife said she thinks she contributed? And then, of course, now the scales fall off of, okay, I'm not in a corner. People are owning their own things. So I love that that's kind of your first tip is own your things, own your shadows. Right, right. And if there's someone whose partner isn't into the Enneagram and resists it, and and the best way to allow that person to overcome their resistance is to talk about the things they don't like about you and how you can see what that's all about <laughs> through the Enneagram, right? It's like, you you don't like this about me? Well, let me tell you about that. You know, here's where it comes oh from and here's God. what I know about it. And, here, you know, and the person's going to be sold. It's like, wow, like that helped you see what I was trying to get you to see all this time. You know, that that's going to be powerful. So you can talk about yourself for a while and not need them to see themselves in a particular way. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's important. Oh, I love that. And then when you start talking about them, as you're alluding to, it's a more generous illumination. 
of. And I've thought through a little bit of your story. Maybe you can tell me if this resonates very gently coming in to see if it fits with that Columbo effect we learned in college and grad school. But it's, hey, I don't know if I'm right here, but if this is true about you, help me to see if this is something that you're feeling as you bring into the marriage. So it's it's a bit of a gentler dance. Right. And also even focusing on what the impact on you is of what they're doing. You know, like, I don't know what's going on with you, right? Because when people feel you trying to get inside them and tell them what they're about, they're going to put up their defenses and they should, right? Because that's in a way, and I think when we're, when we get excited about the Enneagram, I think it's just a natural product of being excited about the Enneagram that we start seeing things in people, you know, and, and so it makes sense. And if people start feeling like you're seeing, you're, you're thinking you're knowing things about them that they aren't saying themselves, that can be a big reason to, to hold up a, a, a boundary. But if you're uh, saying, here's the impact, you do this thing and here's the impact on me. And here's m- what my type says about what that says about me, mm-hmm. you know, and these are dynamics. It's not like anybody's fault, but yeah, I'm, I experience this when I'm with you. And I know that part of that is about me, uh, yeah. but I invite you to explore what's going on for you, you know, I and love- because because you're right, it needs to be very carefully done so that because anyone who feels like people are trying to push them into a corner mm-hmm. is going to act like they're cornered. And it just yeah. that just makes sense. Yes. And I think as people have so much struggle in the years, I notice anyway, research based around year five and year 12 of, of marriage for different reasons, as we head into child rearing often, as well as middle marriage and the losses that are in both of those seasons. But what I notice is that sometimes if you're able to, and I'm not judging anyone who's divorced, but able to head on into those middle years by some strength, um, sometimes what's neat I've noticed is that the kids can help each of you as well to, mm-hmm. to be a bit more of a reflection to say, mm-hmm. I, I noticed that too about each of you. And mm-hmm. so then there's the Enneagram, another layer of extended family saying, Hey, these are some patterns that we're all noticing. And if we're going to push on with that collective, like we're getting our self-care, we're doing our one-to-one care or our small group, how are we going to be most effective out in the world if we can't even look here in this middle dynamic? So I I think that it's neat to think about all the different places and ways we could find some growth through conflict, but we're both agreeing as a two and a seven, we need to do it gently, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about how you see the instincts playing a role in marriage care when it comes to conflict? Cause I think this is just huge and I've heard mm-hmm. you talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things the instinct level of the Enneagram types points out to us is that we are animals, you know, that we have this instinctual level that especially may get stirred up when we're threatened, you know, and we can act very much from the instinctual. Now, uh, in the human personality, of course, the instincts combine with or get driven by our ego, And that's one of the biggest problems, you know, is that not that our instincts are a problem. We need our instincts to survive in the world. Um, But when they combine with our ego and its priorities, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it brings out the most unconscious behavior in us. So 
Um, so it helps to understand your dominant instinct and sometimes your whole instinctual sequence. Your, you know, the first one that tends to take up the most real estate in your experience, the second one, and then the repressed instinct also often has a big impact. So for instance, um, you know, someone who is self-preservation dominant. And again, I always caution, you need to also look at your subtype, not just your dominant instinct, your sequence, because these, these instincts show up differently depending on what type we are. Um, But generally uh, understanding your, your dominant instinct and the instinct of your partner Mm -hmm. helps a lot because there are some basic things that we can kind of be at odds with each other around uh, that are much more easily understood at the instinctual level. You know, so Mm -hmm. if I'm self-preservation dominant, which I am, it can be a little bit like resistance to change. Um, So, you know, if you're suggesting we change something, my first thing, my first answer will be no, (laughs) you know, and the more you insist, the less I may look at that, you know, Mm -hmm. I need to sort of slow down and know that about myself and say, okay, I just need time to get used to this. Also with a self-preservation dominant instinct, there can be a little bit, a little bit more of a tendency to, I'm just going to go in on my, my own. You know, like if you don't get me, if you don't, you're not there for me and the way I define it, like, well, forget, forget about you. And I may withdraw, I may, um, you know, do things more on my own as an unconscious way to punish the other person or just out of a fear that I won't be able to depend on you because that Mm -hmm. sort of anxiety difficulty trusting these can be things that that come along with being self-preservation dominant the go it alone kind of strategy. (laughs) Again, sometimes it seems like perfect, it makes perfect sense. You know, like you're acting like this, why would I depend on you? But when we see that it's a part of that, that really strong instinctual drive that can really get going when we're under threat in a relationship, then that's important. It is important. And of course there are other biases with the others as well. Hmm. And maybe we could take a few minutes to talk about each of them a little bit more. Do you mind if I delve in a little deeper on even the SD? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I love that you and I share that subtype um, just because it makes me feel safe um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> as an SP. And I think that a lot of our listeners are just learning. I always forget mm-hmm. that people are just learning all the time. They might even just be reminded now that they might think, wait a minute, I thought it was my type that mattered. And what B and I are saying is you have something even deeper going on at the animal instinctual level. So you might be a two like B and not realizing that trust is even an issue for you. Would you say it like that for a self-pres person? Yeah, I would say that there are different dimensions to the Enneagram and you can learn a lot from all of them and some of them even kind of put together, uh, kind of creating more like pieces of the puzzle that are kind of all informative. And I would say, yes, knowing your type is really important, basic information, and that will tell you a lot. And then knowing your dominant instinct will tell you more. And then putting that together with your type that that shows what your subtype is and subtype patterns tell you a lot. Uh, And then again, what your whole instinctual sequence is, what tends, what instinct tends to get repressed or just not in the picture at all can Mm -hmm. also have an impact. So there are different dimensions. And as you learn more, you get access to more and more information. Which is so cool. And I think why most of us are just realizing this is a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah. So there's grace because it's for me, at least very slow at times, painful. Um, and that's very hard. So, um, I think that that's important for the self-pres people out there who, yes, I've done episodes on this, but if you haven't heard, or even if you have, um, check out B's show on this, cause they talk about it a lot. Um, as well as in their masterclass, which I love, but you can also just even now analyze with us. Am I a person who tends to kind of lock up, like she said, and kind of need time to process change and want my materials near me. Um, and what is the backstory on that? Sometimes it's even nice to go back into the collective. Like I can say my Croatian grandmother and the depression. And, you know, she was always telling me you have to save everything and memories where somebody maybe took something from me. And then this is the fascinating piece with marriage is I married somebody who is so high in the social. I was social with him for so long. I got so burnt out in my social seven that I almost Uh. collapsed. So now I've had to come into self-pres and I tested so high on self-pres after I lost my parents that it was in the 90th something percentile. So I also kind of noticed a major shift. So it just kind of gives our listeners a sense of, Mm. yes, I'm using a story to tell you from my life, but I hope you can put it into your life too, that maybe there's even been a bit of a shift because of the marriage dynamic. Does that make sense? Or the family history? Yeah. Yeah. That, that those all are important pieces. I think when we find out our dominant instinct, uh, we've found that there are a lot of like themes in the family system or historical experiences that, that have this deep or or almost held in the body or held in our psyches, you know? So you find, for instance, you know, people who are self-presdominant, they connect to something in their family system, like, like their ancestors went through a famine or war or some sort of deprivation, you know, like it's interesting. And I'm, I'm half Irish and half Portuguese and on both sides, especially the Portuguese side, my not so distant ancestors came from a lot of poverty. Oh, yeah. So that. yeah, it's very interesting. And my, with my Irish side, it goes back farther. You have to go back a few more generations to get there, but still. Um, so those kinds of things. And yes, absolutely. When you're in relationship, it's very interesting to note how you're different. If you have different instincts um, or if you have the same one, how, what happens because of that, yes. you know, like if your partner has a social instinct, how, how does that impact you both in terms of what happens in your relationship and what happens with you? Like you say, when you subtly adapt to the other person to, you know, to support that connection. Right. And I I don't want people to lose heart either, because as you say that, I think about how the people in my life, and I'm sure the same is true for listeners and for you, that we do help one another not to get totally stuck. So for those who are self-pres people, uh, there's a bit of a comfort with knowing, even though I am this way, my family, which is strange, appear all four of them to be social subtypes. They really balance me out, but sometimes I just run under my blankets and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done for the day. I need one hour of peace. And I think that sometimes I even go too far and I say, what did I do to create for them not to want to be self-pressed? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I have to like, okay, stop. Like, that's not helpful. Just mm-hmm. take your hour to rest and then join the wild mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that they, I think long-term we'll learn from the self-pres and then we're not talking yet about the sexual, but we will. Um, I just want to give our listeners that sense of like the fluidity of this and how we're still kind of learning and balancing. At least I am. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And as usual, the main thing is awareness. Yes. You know, it's not like something should be another way or there's something wrong with being a certain way or having a particular instinct or a relationship that's a certain way. It's more about, okay, this is, this is what is, yes. <laughs> this is, there must be a reason, something for me to learn from being around all these socials, right? And yeah. like you say, when you're not very conscious of it, you can maybe overcompensate and just try to be more like them to fit in, or maybe that's part of the self-preservation yeah. strategy. Right. Uh, but what you're exactly like you're saying, what's even better is if you become really aware and in the pressure of being with people with different instincts, you can say, okay, hold on. <laughs> I honor the way you are. And I need to be even more clear about what I need so that I can both, you know, um, take care of myself, but also be flexible to be able to, because with the instincts, it's about, again, first awareness, but also then like, how do you even them out? You know, how do you bring up the, the instincts that are less there? And how do you kind of rein in the dominance of the one that's, that's, you know, most, uh, most drives your behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. And I like how you have shared on your podcast and in your masterclass, um, just to kind of help us to understand the sequencing better. If people are wondering, what do we mean by sequencing? Um, I think that based on a basic level though, we can remember that you said one of them is dominant and we're kind of talking about the self-pres and moving on from that in a minute, but, but we also have a repressed instinct that we kind of don't really want to visit very much, or maybe we feel burnt out on, but then mm -hmm. I've also been just fascinated by the fact that you remind us, don't forget the second one too, mm -hmm. because that one could really get us stuck in marriage also when mm -hmm. you're or life. But I mean, when you're thinking I'm good there, it's fine. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I'm actually not really tending to that one at all. Have you noticed mm -hmm. that too in conflict? I have noticed that people don't really pay much attention to that one. And so on the one hand, they don't. So one, the, the way I see the, ins, the, 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 ins, the sequence is that one kind of dominates your experience. And if you're not very aware, it takes up all the space. It drives a lot of what you do now, again, especially combined with your type to create subtype patterns. Mm -hmm. Now, the second one, some people say it's normal, you know, well, I, I don't see it that way. I see it. It can either be somewhat repressed or some at times yeah. it can function in ways that aren't optimal. Let's say it that way. Yeah. But here's the thing about the second one. It's the easiest to change. It's the easiest mm -hmm. with work, with sort of conscious attention to, to allow it to function as it should. Now it might be good for people to remember this, like when we're really, really healthy, it's not that we don't have our instincts operating. It's that they operate as necessary or not. So in other words, if I'm not in a situation where I'm being, my survival is being challenged or threatened and a particular instinct would help me, then it may not, it may not, you know, fire off. It may not happen. You know, when we're really healthy and our egos aren't driving the show, it's almost like our instincts get activated and they don't get activated based on external what's ob objectively happening in external reality, right? But when we're in our egos, by definition, we're more focused on our own um, kind of, you know, basically history, you know, our own sort of reactions or a reactivity. 
that's about protecting our image or protecting our ego. And that's when we kind of go wrong. Like for instance, in a relationship where we may get stuck in a dynamic with someone that never gets healed and eventually leads to a breakup, right? If you're doing something that bothers me, I'm doing something that bothers you and we can't stop doing it because when you do what you do, I react. And when I react, you react to me and we're in an endless cycle of reactivity. And so you know, to go back to the first question, the way we unravel that conflict is by studying our own reactivity Mm -hmm. to the point where we get to be experts on, oh, now I understand what's happening at an unconscious level. It's about Mm -hmm. making what's unconscious more conscious. So when we get to the instincts, it's about how can I stop all my instincts from either over-functioning or under-functioning, like getting fired off. Like, so when, you know, I sometimes say like, if you're not being chased by a lion, maybe your self-presence instinct doesn't need to be firing off so much, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, I'm, I tend to give the example of myself and food, you know, cause my mm-hmm. self-presence instinct oh, get gets focused a lot toward like, where's my me- next meal yes. coming from? And is it going to be good? And do I have enough? Um, whereas in my life, I'm privileged enough that there's no chance of starvation. You know, there's absolutely no chance that my life is threatened by not having enough. So it's like the fact that there's anxiety about that is the problem, right? Because there's no reason for it. So with the second instinct, I, I often think it's actually good to kind of pay attention to that and build it up to work in healthy ways. So for instance, as a self-preservation too, even though I have social second, my social instinct sometimes um, was under-functioning. For instance, when I first started like speaking in a group, yeah. I would get super emotional and would almost wouldn't be able to speak. Like I, when I was doing group work as part of my psychotherapy training, every time I would talk, I would cry. Yeah. Like that's not really you know, the social behavior that you want to do also social is connected to friendship and leadership. And, um, and so like I, I took a group facilitation training course, I became a leader of an organization. These are things that at first felt really weird and foreign, which signals that I'm not social dominant, but I was able over time to really bring up that social instinct much more. Whereas now I, I like, um, speaking in front of people, and most social twos will say they like speaking in front of people that they, they have an easy time of it. They don't feel scared. Um, and it, but it took me some work to get there, but I'm there. Whereas mm-hmm. with the repressed instinct, that's a little bit harder. It's almost like you've given up on that or that whole thing is not part on your radar screen. And that takes some work. Now, some people say you mm-hmm. should work on your repressed instinct first. I don't think so mm-hmm. only because it's just not going to work because Mm -hmm. the dominant instinct will kind of keep coming in and taking over. Um, So I think you have to, you can work on all three at once, but I think working on the dominant instinct first and then bringing the second instinct up are sort of the first stage of work. And then later when you have that a little more uh, in your awareness, then I think working on the repressed instinct and certainly observing how, how it may show up, usually not proactively, usually after the the fact uh, can be a good thing to do as well. Oh, that's fascinating. That really adds to our learning here. Thank you. Because we've been really looking at it from, as I said, let's build up and reuptake with self 
Prez, which I'm aware of as the host of the show that I choose that one first. But then I always say, you got to put your oxygen mask on. And then the second instinct, I say, get your one to one, your family healthy, and then move out into the world, like I mentioned. But I really like you saying, um, and I do say what comes first, the chicken or the egg sometimes, because I'm like, if you just stop where you're at, you, you're not in a vacuum anyway. You can just start that cycle. But I also like you saying, a healthy way to work on this is which one is the most comfortable because that's going to be the easiest, safest place. Just like we said with spouses, you've got to find the place of least resistance and least defensiveness. Um, and then, like you said, even just scale back a little there. Are you really needing that much self-prez um, and then, or, or sexual or social. And that way, then you can move into the second one, which isn't as hard, which I love how you shared now speaking is much easier for you. Um, and then lastly, that last one, you said the one that's toughest is where we work on last. And, and that's helpful for marriage too, because mm-hmm. with our spouse, whether we share the instinct or not, I think our, our collective goal as spouses and as a culture is that we'd be healthy and balanced in all of them. Right. 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 Yeah. I would make one slight distinction. And Mm -hmm. that is while I think that like working on the repressed instinct probably needs to come last. I do think it's good to observe how that absence impacts you and your relationships. Right. Because my, my business partner, um, and podcast co-host, um, is self-preservation repressed. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, we travel together, we work together, we teach together and that impacts our relationship a lot. There are certain things that he just doesn't pay attention to that gets him in trouble, that sometimes gets us in trouble. And of course I over-focus on that. And sometimes I feel like I have to do that to compensate, you know? And so him being more conscious and aware of that, that is the way he is, you know, helps me, helps us not get into a polarity, which happens a lot with couples where one person's doing all of one thing and the other person sort of takes the other pole. And the more they do that, the more separated they get. Whereas it can help for the other person to kind of take on the other person's usual role um, so that people don't get stuck and, and separated from each other through these kinds of polarities. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I love your personal example that you're saying even as much as you know about the Enneagram and have done so much self-work that there's also a lot of grace that we need to give to ourselves in the process because we get stuck. And I always try to come from that perspective. I hope I come off that way that um, we're just in process and learning about this, being open and curious about it helps you so much to be able to say not only about the type, but the instincts to say, you know, I notice that I happen to run this way. I also love the stories we can tell that disarm our partners about, I I wonder if this story is true for you about your one-to-one or your social drive or your SP drive. And that just gives them permission to not be perfect, which Mm -hmm. I think they really appreciate like, oh, thank you for acknowledging that I didn't just, these survival instincts have helped me so much, quite honestly. So if we can do this important work as a couple to get balanced, uh, I think that's beautiful. And I do have uh, I do have a planner that I have a lot of my couples going through that I created, which has every single week, you have to talk through ways you're balancing your instincts. And my husband and I have been doing this for you know January and February so far. And it's been wow. very insightful because he doesn't do self, he's self-pres repressed also. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, I just can't work out because I don't have time. And uh, mm-hmm. so I've been kind of dragging him out. But what I look forward to as one 
recent uh, guest said on the podcast, instead of a dragging, it's more of a bringing. Um, and I think that that was a beautiful way to say like, this is how it sort of evolves with that repressed. And I think he's sort of bringing me socially versus dragging me and I can see it happening, but it's awkward, you know? So we have to be careful of that. So what tips would you have for people who are in that self-pres? We talked a lot about that as we introed the whole topic, but I just would love it if there was like one or two tips for couples who are just, Hey, I'm self-pres. How could we work through that in marriage? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, again, I think of a lot of it is about just observing, noticing like, oh, there I go again. I'm noticing I'm doing this without any judgment um, and being able to share about that. Like, oh, here's what I noticed in myself today. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes if we can just make that more conscious in an ongoing way, that right there kind of lessens some of the force behind it because yeah. you kind of create more room for not judging yourself or just allowing yourself to be the way you are. And then through observing it, it's sort of like, Oh, I can see how that's not working. You know, I can see how, yeah, I can understand where this impulse comes from, like needing to be alone or not trusting you or, you know, but what if I just allowed that to be true, but tried to work it on the edges, like try to take, take a leap of faith and trust you a little more, you know, notice that I tend to resist change and try to be a little more flexible, you know, kind of working those. And we often say that in with, with instincts and subtypes, it's a lot about behavior. It's a lot about what you do, Mm. not what you're imagining about yourself. Right. It's like, okay, look at what you actually did. (laughs) Right. You said no to something before thinking about it, you know, can you say, let me think about that and tell you in two days and really work with yourself to say, okay, my, my, um, my natural resistance because I fear for my safety is this, but what if I gave, gave it a try? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. I've done it so bad. And I, I see myself sometimes making those little changes and and I know our listeners are just with us. They're doing the baby steps. So it's a beautiful example for a self-pres. Now tell us about the sexual subtype and something they might be able to do when they're just so dominant in it and their spouse is trying to pull them a little bit behind, maybe because you shared a bit about self-pres and how there's a bit of history to that, maybe a bit about that too. And what do you think the history is with sexual? With sexual. So I think with sexual uh, dominance, it's a lot about the other is everything, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot about everything happens through the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And there can be too much intensity, too much focus, too much pressure on the other person to relate to you in a particular way, to be really intense, to be um, really merged in certain ways, in ways, in ways that other people, if they're not sexual dominant, might resist, but also ways that they may, um, that may not be good for the relationship, actually, you know, sexual dominance can think, well, if, if, if this relationship is everything, then it must be great to be with me, you know, (laughs) you know, but if you're overdoing that, if you're acquiring too much from your partner, if you're not spreading around your needs in your life to other people, to being able to be more on your own, then that tends to put too much pressure on the relationship. Um, so that, you know, sexuals need to, um, you know, be more okay being by themselves, you know, get more of their needs met by friends, you know, and not, not need to, to be so get so much fuel from uh, that particular bond. 
Oh, that's so important. I love it that they reuptake themselves, that they find a way to, there's so much energy there to kind of pull back a little bit of that bigness and on the one person and say, like, I want to spread this out so that I don't overwhelm that person. Right. Um, and I think their spouses really appreciate that so much because they're like, I can have a bit of breathing room and mm-hmm. come back to being fascinated by you. Cause we need mm-hmm. that pursuer distance or a little bit in marriage mm-hmm. and say, yeah, you're, you're pretty special. You are pretty great. That's why I love your vibrancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't feel controlled. And maybe sometimes there's even uh, a bit of a history of uh, some sort of oppression, you know, sometimes I get that one in the social confused a bit, but do you feel that sometimes there's a bit of a abuse history with the sexual subtype? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the sort of, sort of instinctual family system, ancestral theme is some sort of abuse. It can be physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, even homicide, because the energy of the sexual instinct is about rivalry Mm-hmm. So it's like they tend to be more competitive, more aggressive, not all subtypes, yeah. not all types, but mm-hmm. there tends to be that kind of intensity of like pushing mm-hmm. someone out of the way to get to the partner, which can be lead to kind of violent tendencies. Uh, yeah. But again, that's uh, at a very unconscious level. And sometimes it just where it comes from in the family system. Yeah. And I think that you sharing that and me trying to enunciate that to our listeners will help them not only in marriage, but friendships, because I know that when I feel assaulted in a friendship, I go, oh my gosh, I'm going to be overtaken because I'm not really that competitive in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it makes me retreat. Now, what I want to recommend to spouses and friends is I don't want to lose the friendship just because I need a pause. I try to not leave. I notice a lot of people just done never doing this again. And I try to like, man, I know everyone does this to them. I'm going to stay, but I'm going to pause first. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. 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 Ask for a little space, but say, I'm not going away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if spouses could do that, I don't have a sexual subtype spouse, but if they could do that, that would be so safe for the sexual subtype to know, like, if I don't overpower you, you might leave me. But if I know that you're just going to take a pause and you're going to let me know, I love you, a term of endearment, and I'll be back. I think that gives them a bit of safety. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, thank you for clarifying that difference. And then the social subtype, when we have a partner who's so overpowering here, how do you think they can grow in marriage or their partners? Mm-hmm. I think social dominance can recognize that they get a lot of their energy from the group or the community or being with other people. And that sometimes that's a great thing. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that helps the family be more connected to extended family or to other people in the community or to friends. Um, so it's a good thing as with all of these traits, there's an upside and a downside, I like to say about everything. Um, but I also think that um, when social is overdone, um, there can almost be a unconscious um, avoidance of the relationship mm-hmm. by going out to everybody else. You know, if I, you know, if I'm at a party, I'm with everybody else and I'm having a great time, but I'm not really with my partner, you know? And so I think learning to balance, create a balance between social contact and being with others in groups or even at work or things like that. And also prioritizing the relationship and challenging yourself to be really present, to go deeper with the per- with one person and yeah. also take care of yourself um, yeah. as a, and seeing those th- things as, as all equally important mm-hmm. um, and not 
unconsciously um, getting your needs met through being a leadership position or being with groups or in a, from a, um, some sort of way that your image or your reputation is burnished by what you do in the community, uh, not overdoing that, you know, and not looking for all your life gratification through those kinds of experiences and, and balancing them out. Wow. That is really helping me to reflect on just different prisms, if you will, of parts of this that I haven't even looked at. And it's making me think, you know, I can see how in marriage we might really screw each other up and bless each other mm-hmm. when we can uh, start to learn some steps here or even kind of clumsily go through them. Because if our spouse is one of these subtypes or instincts that kind of just we're used to it, Mm-hmm. This is what I've been noticing lately is we can keep each other stuck in these shadows um, because it's like, Hey, I'm self-prez you're social. I want you to grow on social. But once you start coming into my space, uh, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that it also takes a bit of a bravery to say to that social person, if they're not going to find their identity anymore in the crowd, are you going to show up for them more at home? Because I think we have to nurture our spouses as they're changing. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes we just need to communicate more about all that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And um, I have to dose it because my husband's like, you've been with me for 20 years doing this and I need to have you dose it. So I do dose it and he comes back and he brings it back up. Uh, He's a one and he's like, oh, I'm a one and I do this. Um, So then I can enter in again. Um, Mm -hmm. But you do have to do that dance with your, with your partner. And like be said, when there's an inroads go deep Um, Mm -hmm. with that social um, instinct, do you think that there's a layer of oppression in some way for them too? You mean something? Yes, definitely. It often comes from um, a history of some sort of being kept out of the group, um, excommunicated. Um, sometimes it comes from some sort of slavery or being publicly shamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's a word that's not coming to me. It has to do with it's not excommunicated. It's um, it's um, exiled, pariah. exiled, okay. exiled, banished, you know, yeah. those kinds of things of, uh, you know, sometimes it can be religious in the his- mm-hmm. history, you know, sometimes you know, persecuted for your religion or your culture, those kinds of things. Um, uh, one culture kind of enslaving another, all those kinds of things can be part of a history. And so there can be, there's also social repressed people who can be, who can have that, a similar thing. And sometimes it's like a fear of being like really called out and persecuted in public. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. These dimensions go so deep. So that's why it's so important that we take time with them, yeah. but the rewards are great. And so I don't know if you have a moment to end on maybe some of the rewards of doing instinctual mm-hmm. work. Absolutely. I think in some ways, um, when we aren't more conscious and aware of our instinctual drivers and how they, how they, express themselves through our personality is the way I'd put it. Um, and this is why it's good to know your type and your subtype. It's, it's like they drive the show. They're in danger of, you know, you're, it's like with our instincts, our heads don't come into it. Mm. You know, the instincts are so fast. Like if the head, if a thought uh, sort of travels at the speed of X, uh, a feeling travels at the speed of 10 X and uh, an instinctual impulse 
travels at the speed of 100x. This is the reptilian brain. It's so fast. And so usually we can only sort of see it in retrospect. It's hard to stop ourselves through self-observation with the instincts. But if we can say, wow, look at what I just did, you know, or what I did yesterday and how my instinctual reaction just really took over. The more we bring that into awareness um, without criticizing ourselves, the more we can kind of loosen up, you know, we can sort of um, uh, reassure ourselves um, and get reassurance from others, but also learn to loosen up the, the ways, the rigid ways or kind of knee jerk ways that the instincts can drive what we do to the point where we kind of are out of control. You know, we're not having the capability of directing what we do in our relationships with more conscious awareness, more choice. Uh, And so it's, it's having a lot of patience with yourself and a lot of compassion, but also studying these things to the point where we can realize, okay, I'm going to need to do something differently. Uh, And that sometimes that means practice something differently or experiment with something differently, but I need to change the way I react and the way I do things because when it's driven by the instinct in an unconscious way, I don't have any freedom in my life. Um, mm. And that includes the freedom to improve my relationships. So I would say study it, be with it, understand it, and try to, and again, more with the instincts with, than with other things, try to do things differently and see what happens and practice and get better at um, doing things differently rather than being controlled by Uh, your instincts or your subtype patterns. Mm, Yeah, that's really a good motivator for people just to hear, you know, freedom, uh, you know, a a temporary loss of control so that you can ultimately get healthier and not lose your relationships. This is so key because I know we're doing them because we think it's going to keep everything healthy, but it's hurting us. And I do notice that after a while in relationships with a friend or a spouse or a adult child, you realize I I have to shift something or my intentions don't matter. It's not going well. So the person isn't going to respond well. So I do think sometimes Mm -hmm. there's that exterior motivator, but sometimes, Mm -hmm. like you said, if you can catch it first, Mm -hmm. it can be you just knowing, Hey, I'm going to benefit so much. If I let, I let go of a little bit this, but I also love the grace you shared of here's why, because you have this family history where there was some starvation with both the Portuguese side and the Irish side. Um, I know when the Irish came to America, it was really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, same with Croatian and my family, they were really yeah. taken to the mines and, you know, often not given jobs. And I know my grandmother's ran a boarding house and, and she whispered it into my ear almost every night <laughs> to tell me. So there's great, beautiful stories about what these people did for our survival. And that's very mm-hmm. moving, but I guess we're all learning together. We don't have to be quite so extreme mm-hmm. as long as we keep moving forward. Right. Right. And we actually honor our ancestors when we learn to go beyond what they had to do to survive, you know, instead of it being kind of programmed into us to be able to be more aware of our programming and realizing, oh, I don't have to react to this. I can choose something different. And, and that's when I think it's really important is to create more room for conscious choice of doing things differently. And I think most importantly, I think where this often happens, where we actually sort of where the rubber meets the road is actually doing something difficult, you know, Mm -hmm. in your relationship. Like I know I've had these moments in time where like everything in me wanted to be mad at someone in my life and to be able to 
get over the anger and talk to the person about how they hurt me, you know, or ask for help from someone. Like there, there've been these moments where I'm like, Oh, everything in me says, I can't do this. I can't talk about this. I can't, you know, but if I can do it, that's when the reward comes. Like everything in me is saying, I don't want to share this with you, or I don't want to communicate this, or I don't want to have to shift this thing about myself. That's a problem for me and you, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I can take the risk of really trying to do it. That's when I think huge shifts are, are possible possible. And when life gets better and there are rewards we didn't dream of. I know it's beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm thinking of a text that I brought up an emotional song to my husband and he um, said that was a little too much for him. And then uh, the next day he sent me a song and he said, I was thinking about what you said. And I, ha- this is so silly, but this is how we micro communicate is mm-hmm. I had the option to either heart the song or ignore it. And I started out ignoring it and I'm like, I'm going to heart it. <laughs> so yeah. like these little movements toward each other yeah. are so beautiful. Yeah. And it's the bigger healing. Like you said, that our ancestors would have wanted for us. It's our way of carrying on the legacy work that they started. And so that's just such a fascinating piece. I'm going to keep listening to you guys because you, you go deep like that. And I love that. Um, we're trying to do the work with you here at Enneagram and marriage. So where can our listeners continue to learn from you guys? So there's a lot they can access at our website, cpenneagram.com. Um, we have a new book that came out in October, the Enneagram Guide, Guide to Waking Up, um, Find Your Path, Face Your Shadow, Discover Your True Self. But mainly, yeah, mainly at our, you can find out about our courses and programs at, uh, at cpenneagram.com. Okay, perfect. I loved your love languages course. And as I said, your ongoing masterclass, your podcast, you guys are delving in as well as just helping people for free, which is such a beautiful combination. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been wonderful being with you, Krista. Yay. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed learning with me on today's episode. It was so much fun learning from B. What a treat for us. And I hope that we will not leave the information, but allow it to settle in. I've already started chatting with my hubby about it, and I hope that we can continue that conversation bravely. It takes me a lot to get to that safe place. So thank you for journeying with me. I love doing it together with you. It really encourages me, and I hope you feel the exact same way. And in the meantime, if you want to go deeper in your Enneagram learning, I hope you'll check out cpenneagram.com with B and Uranio. She is a two, he is a five. They are just a phenomenal wealth of wisdom for you and your growth. I also hope you'll check out the Enneagram and Marriage Glow Relationship Planner. If you'd like to balance your instincts out on a week-by-week basis with us, we talk about it each week on this season of their show. And then lastly, don't forget our deep dive guides as we go through each of the types in marriage. We have 30 pages of information for you to grow in your journeys together. In addition to the type six episode, we have an extra special episode for you also to look forward to this week. We are talking with Olivia about Love is Blind. We are going through season two. So I'm so excited to do that with you guys. It is the number one show in Netflix right now. So I had to delve in. I don't normally do that. You know, I'm all about my classics, but it was too good to resist. This topic is fascinating, especially in regards to instinct. So join us for special fun later this week on that. I hope you have a wonderful day. I will talk with you soon. Thank you again for listening with us. It was so wonderful to have you. I love knowing we're doing this journey together, not perfectly, but with love, grace, and hopefully some fun too. 
If you love today's episode, make sure you leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcast or Spotify so others can find it too. Visit our show notes so you can get all the links from today's show as well as anyramandmarriage.com, the Instagram, the Facebook, and all over the place. Make sure you spread the word. Love living intentionally with you. Bye-bye.